0: Welcome to my mommy's podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Healthy Moms podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com, and today's episode is not strictly about physical health, but it may be one of the most important episodes you listen to because it's about cyber safety and security, and especially how to keep yourself and your kids safe online. In the wake of the recent data breaches, it's important to know what we're facing when it comes to online security and how to stay safe. And today's guest, Patrick McFadgen, has a background and degree in computer science. He's worked in the tech and security industries for years, and it turns out that many of us are unknowingly doing things that make us vulnerable online. I've worked with Patrick personally to improve my own internet security and today he's sharing his strategies and advice for keeping your family safe online. If you have follow-up questions related to this episode, make sure to check the show notes at wellnessmama.fm to find out how to contact Patrick with your questions. So Patrick, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I think this is going to be awesome. It's definitely a deviation from the normal for us, but I think it's really important for moms to know because moms kind of kind of are the key to the online world for a lot of their kids. And I know you and I have had conversations about how a lot of us are doing things without realizing it that may put us at risk online. And I know one of these is passwords and you have a lot of um, data and a lot of research here. So let's start with an easy one. Um, what do we need to know when it comes to our passwords online?
1: Well, there's some very obvious knowledge about passwords, you know, longer is better. A phrase is better than a single word. But we we can go a lot more in depth and actually give some very good information, some quantifiable information that will help. To give a little bit of background, it's important to know that most companies shouldn't actually be storing your password. What they should be storing is what's called a password hash. And it's just a very fancy, elaborate, mathematical equation that takes the letters and numbers you type in and changes them into just a number and it does the same thing every time so the companies should never actually have your password if you've ever received an email from a company if you've requested your password be you know recovered and they send you your password that is a major red flag they should not have that information because if someone breaks into their systems They just get your password flat out. So if you've ever gotten an email or have a company that sends you a password that you can read, you should definitely distance yourself from the company and work on letting them know for one and find a better solution to whatever that company was providing you. As far as passwords go in general, to have a very secure one, you want longer than eight characters. Most passwords on the internet, people run statistics on the recovered password lists that have been breached. Eight characters is the vast majority of them. So don't use an eight character password. To give you an idea, if you use a eight character password that's only lowercase letters, there is a total of 217 billion possible combinations. And while that may sound like a lot, That that number of guesses can be done in less than a second on on modern hardware. So it is absolutely not a secure length or type of password. What you're looking for is a password that is strong in length and entropy. So the length is pretty obvious. Longer is better. But entropy is just as important. Entropy is how diverse the characters are. So, for instance, the password 12345678 has almost no entropy. It's, you know, every character is directly related to the one before it. You want ones that are very random. To give you an idea of using high entropy and using your full keyboard, that's an important point, use lowercase, uppercase, numbers, and special characters. I, I know you've all gone through a password submission or creation online and They always have the weird requirements of you have to have at least one uppercase and one number. Just to give you an idea of the difference, if you're talking about an eight-character length password, the difference between only using lowercase letters and using the full keyboard, like I said, 217 billion possible combinations for lowercase. When you up to the full keyboard, it becomes 6.7 thousand million million possible combinations so that that should illustrate the vast difference between you know using only this uh, lowercase set of letters and the full keyboard now if you look at the length the difference between a 30 character password and an 8 character password uh, only using lowercase is 217 billion to 2.93 Million, 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 million possible combinations. I know this is all a little difficult over voice, and I apologize, but that should give you the ballpark. So it's very important to use lots of entropy and a sufficient length.
0: That makes sense. So... To go back to that one statistic you said it takes under a second for current technology to get through 217 billion combinations. Is that right? Because they're basically just using all the randomized potential combinations. So like even if you think you're being like super creative by spelling a word differently, it doesn't matter.
1: That's correct. Current password cracking systems are measured in terahashes per second, which is 1 trillion guesses per second if they have your your password hash. And mo- most of these go multiple Tera hashes. So that's what you, you really want to have a robust, a very robust password.
0: And what about, so I mean, most of us are juggling like, I know I probably have 200 different online passwords that I have to deal with at any given time. Um, and for a lot of years, I don't do this now, thanks to your advice, but I would just use the same password for everything. Um, is there, I mean, if we're talking about memorizing 200 passwords and trying to remember all these like highly complex 30 character passwords, um, do you have any advice for that? Cause I know that, that that's what gets confusing. And that's why I think a lot of people default to just a same simple password.
1: Absolutely. And it's completely understandable. I, I used to do that too. I would have the same password or, you know, the same password with a slight difference. The best solution to this is to use a password manager. The, the technology behind these currently is, has become very good and they are robust and user-friendly, which is very important. There's a few options you have um, as far as managers go. If you want something online that is syncable between devices, so if you need to log in on your phone and your computer or you know multiple phones, these are a great solution for those. I have the most popular four currently, and those are LastPass, Dashlane, one and RoboForm8. These are all web applications that you can log into, and you are able to retrieve your password vault. And most of them have plugins that let you autofill the username and password forms on online form fields. There are some options for local systems. These are KeyPass and RoboForm 8 also has a local option. This is a file you have on your computer or on a USB drive that you log into and open with your master password, and then that gives you access to your password vault on whatever device you have that connected to This is my preferred solution, just because I don't like giving that information to a third party. But these companies are trustworthy, and have handled any breaches that they have encountered very responsibly. And the technology set up such that a simple breach will not result in the loss of your passwords.
0: That makes sense. And so these, um, because I've used a couple of these before. And so they basically like allow you to create basically a randomized password, correct? That like is, could be that 30 characters or even longer?
1: Yes. These utilities have either built-in or KeePass actually has a password generator you can use online. Just Google KeePass password generator and it'll give you options for your length and what character set you would like to include. This is by far the strongest way to store your passwords and create them humans are notoriously bad at being random it's it's incredibly difficult we just aren't good at it computers actually are so ideally use a use a password manager with a very strong uh, master password for that it's only one password you would need to memorize or you know record and that's the best way to do it if you need to if you don't feel comfortable memorizing it what you can do is write down part of it in your wallet and you know, keep it there. Don't keep the whole thing together. For instance, if you wanted to put, um, you could use a phone number of someone you know and put a list of phone numbers in your wallet. And one of them is you know, part of your password that helps you get in. There are a lot of little tricks you can do that will help you remember strong passwords, which is what you want to do.
0: Got it. And so basically then you just remember the one single password and then you would have a different, unique, and long password for each online thing that you would log into. And of course, I want to mention too, Like we'll have links to the ones you mentioned in the show notes, because I know there's a lot of companies that impersonate password companies and you have to be careful. So the ones that I know that you said we can trust, those will be in the show notes, just to make sure you don't accidentally Google your way into a a dangerous one. Um, But would you say in general, like how much safer do you think it is to use a password manager versus just trying to think of your own passwords?
1: It's a vast difference. Um, not only are the, the password cracking systems out there very fast and have a lot of processing power, they're very intelligent as well. This has been actually a field of study in computer science for years, and so the password crackers will know to look at, okay, I'll try, I, I will try the word dog. Now I'll try dog with a zero instead of, a, uh, of an O, and all the permutations of that, they have become very sophisticated, robust, and intelligent. So having a pseudo-random password is by far your best
0: option. Okay, and just to highlight, are any of these actually like unhackable, or just they like highly reduce your odds?
1: Nothing on the internet is unhackable. That's a sufficiently mo- motivated organization with sufficient resources will be able to break into anything. That being said, LastPass I know for sure has had a breach in the past, but they store the password hashes and vaults in separate places and they have steps that and tricks with computing the hash that make it incredibly time consuming to try to crack that password.
0: That makes sense. So what about, I'm sure there are people listening who for whatever reason don't want to use a password manager. Are there any better ways to do this if you're not going to use a password manager, but still to try to have more secure passwords?
1: yeah there there are some tricks you can do length is by far the most important because when you're trying to guess a password when you're trying to crack one you you don't get any feedback it's it's either a yes or a no so you you try a combination for that hash and you either know yes it matches or no it doesn't so definitely make the passwords as long as you can possibly remember and use special characters don't use For instance, an exclamation point at the end, or a one in front. Anything that simplistic is going to weaken that password. Also, here is a list of the 10 most common passwords from last year. If you are using any of these, please immediately just change them. They are 123456, 123456789, QWERTY, 12345678, 111, 1-1-1-1, 1-2-3-4-5-6-7-8-9-0, 1-2-3-4-5-6-7, one 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 password, all lowercase, one 2, 3, 1, 2 3, and nine eight seven six five four three two one. So any, any of these passwords or anything close to them should not be used. Look, look for something long. You can use words if you'd like, perhaps misspell them, that, that typically helps. Include special characters. And make them as long and, and random as you can in a way that you can still record them. So for instance, if you, if you develop a random string, you can sometimes write that down in, in an inconspicuous place and then pad your password out with, you know, a misspelled word or two to give it the length requirement.
0: That makes sense. And what about names and birthdays? Because I know that's, um, at least I've done that in the past until I learned to stop doing it, but just to like pick a kid's name or your name and a birthday or an anniversary, is that secure or can someone find that data?
1: That is absolutely insecure. Um, Any any publicly accessible information should never be used. And this, this leads into security questions. I'm sure we've all seen those and Just put in, okay, uh, the street I was on, you put it in, you don't think anything about it. If anyone remembers back to, I think it was the 08 election, um, when Sarah Palin's Yahoo account was hacked, that was done through security questions. Somebody googled her name, looked at her Wikipedia entry, and found all the information to her security questions, and reset her password, reset the email, and just got her, her information. You should... Really treat security questions as another password field. Or at the very least, fill them in with completely you know random answers that you can still remember. So, you know, who was your first grade teacher? Toyota Camry. yeah, Something that, at the very least, do that. But try to treat it like a, another password and store those in your password vault. Most of them will give you a section under each site for additional notes, and that's a great place to put those.
0: That makes sense. So I know since you kind of coached me on this, all of my security questions are now randomly generated, 35 date, like 45-character things that, I mean, I would never remember, but they're stored in an online thing. What about having an offline backup? Because that's one thing I've always thought of, like what if something happens to the password manager, I can't get into anything. Is there any safe way to do that?
1: So you can use one of the, um, like, KeePass or RoboForm8 for that backup and you can store that on a flash drive that you you know put in a safe in your house or somewhere hidden or relatively safe Um, those will be encrypted so it's not the end of the world if they get out but you know it's a good idea to keep them safe if you do that you will need to manually edit and update that that uh, key vault as you go, as any changes are made to your to your other one. But keeping an offline backup is not a bad idea.
0: That makes sense. And I know it seems like we're probably talking for like a really long time on a really simple thing, but most people don't think about the fact, like even places where I shop for kids' clothing, my credit card is stored there. So like passwords are a big deal when you look at the fact that like, if you're saving your password in Amazon or at anywhere for like one-step checkout, then if someone hacks that, they have access to a lot more data than just whatever they've gotten into. And especially with email, can't like, if someone hacks into that, they can use it to get into almost anything else, right? If you use your email as a backup.
1: Absolutely. The top of your priority list should absolutely be anything that holds health information. If it's, you know, logging on to some sort of health records site that you use or anything related to health, your email, because if someone compromises your email ed- email account, then they can start sending out password reset requests and start compromising any account that is linked to that email. And also any site that has like your financial information or credit card data, please go back and look through it, update it, and and give them robust passwords.
0: Yeah, super good advice. What about two-factor authentication? I know that's a term that's come up a lot recently, and is that something good to do? And if so, explain what it is and how it works.
1: So two-factor authentication is a way of supplementing the authentication process and it is absolutely something people should be using it's it's a great tool to use and it involves anytime there's a login request with your credentials the site will contact you through some other form of communication and that will allow them to take another step to verifying that it is you you've probably seen this most email clients will if you haven't already will notify you and, and Pester you to do this, which you absolutely should. There are there are better ways to do it than just the SMS that most people are familiar with. There are uh, authenticators out there, like uh, Authy, and I think LastPass has uh, an authenticator app as well that will choose another form of communication other than text message, which is unsecure. It's it's not encrypted. It's plain text, and you can get it very very easily. That being said, if you're using, for instance, KeyPass for your password manager, I would use a different company for your authenticator. Um, it just makes a little more sense to spread that out. Because that way, if someone compromises your keyPass account, they don't compromise your two-factor authentication. So even though they have a lot of your passwords... You definitely, you can, you still have a grace period to change them to, to reset without them immediately being able to compromise your accounts.
0: Got it. That makes sense. So I feel like we have a pretty good grasp of passwords. And hopefully, I mean, if you're listening and you aren't doing those things, like seriously, pause the episode and go do that. Um, It's that important. I know I've seen firsthand what happens when people have their emails hacked and it's not pretty. So I like, I'm, I'm glad that you're highlighting how important that is. And I think another area that people often don't realize how serious it is, is just when it comes to email security and all the ways that there can be vulnerabilities there. So can we go into kind of email security and some things that are important to know about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is probably something you've heard a million times. If you work at a company, your IT person has you know, probably gotten upset about it, and that's clicking attachments, and it's the classic one. You should never open an attachment that you didn't ask for, and that's the rule you should use across the internet. If you didn't go looking for something, do not accept it. If you get a pop-up on a website that says, you know, Hey, do you want to update? No, no you go and you update or if it's not from the browser itself or the program, you never want to, to open anything or accept anything that you did not ask for. Um, this even applies to a lot of the scam phone calls people get where they will they will get a phone call claiming to be for, you know claiming the IRS is calling them about overdue unpaid taxes and there's an arrest warrant if you ever get a call or a credit card company simply hang up on them and then call whatever company or organization they were claiming to be never never accept or give information to anything online or you know through phone that you didn't specifically go looking for that's probably the best way you can stay safe
0: yeah that's good advice across the board let's talk a little bit more about online scams cuz i know these at least from what i've seen are becoming a lot more popular um, and widespread. I know we've even gotten a few calls that people were claiming to be, you know, the police because I was late for jury duty that I never got notice of or whatever. They, they've they gotten really creative with this. So what are some general rules to understand there? I know like, for one thing, the government is usually going to send you mail correspondence first. But even if not, you should never, never, never give out any information, especially your social security number over the phone or online. But what other things do we need to remember?
1: So online, um, especially, there's there's a More common one that if you mistype Facebook or Google, you'll get taken to a web page that looks like, you know, the blue screen of death or some other error, and it'll have a pop-up saying, claiming that Microsoft Windows has determined that your computer is infected, you need to call the number and talk to them about removing the viruses from your computer or something along those lines. These are all scams. Microsoft tech support will never contact you about viruses. They don't they don't have that information nor the resources to to handle that on this scale. So if you ever see that pop up, don't call it. It's it's going to be a scam.
0: Yeah, that's makes sense. I know a recent one that someone in our extended family had happen is I think she received an email or something saying her Yahoo email had been hacked, but it was sent to her Yahoo email and there was like a number to call and she didn't know this. So she called the number and they're like, yes, we can help you unhack it for $250. And it was this whole thing. um, And we had to explain to her that it was a scam. And it took a while actually to get through to her that like, this is not actually real. Like they're trying to hack you. You have not been hacked yet. Um, but it is scary and people are getting really creative, especially with the ones that spoof sites. I think that's important. I also have seen some come through that it looks like it's from, for instance, Facebook or Amazon, but if you actually look at the email address itself, it's not. It's from like something that is very close, but not actually it. So is that a good rule of thumb? Like, should we actually check the email addresses um, or just like not click on anything, just always go to the site itself?
1: So not clicking on them is, is by far the safest way, but that is something that you should be prepared for having clicked on things there's going to be a day you haven't had your coffee and you're looking at your email you click it try to avoid that if at all possible but take a minute before you you do anything and think about it think about would microsoft be calling me about a virus on my computer that seems a little far fetched you know would the irs be calling me probably not look at look at what's being requested and think about why why this company would want me to do that. And if it seems like it could be a valid reason, then you know close that tab on your browser or hang up and then go look up what the correct number is and call the company. Um, it's a little more work and you, you have to deal with the automated phone systems, but it's completely worth the security to do that.
0: That makes sense. And I think another thing that um, I'd love to delve into is just online use in general and online browsing. Because I think most of us, um, if we don't really have a background in this, our default is just to go to Google or go to our browser um, and just search for whatever we need. Or like, I know that like people don't often think about what they're you know, what they're doing when they're on the internet. They just browse or they go to, they click on links, they go to YouTube or whatever it may be. So are there any good rules of thumb just for safe internet usage in general, like browsers that are better or worse or things we can be doing just to protect our security while browsing the internet?
1: So as far as browsers go, Edge, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, the big ones, they're safe. You know, make sure whenever you download them, you go to the official site. This is kind of a, you know, don't Don't go to shady links. It's it's a very similar mindset of go find what you're looking for through Google or a good search engine. But if you're on a site, don't necessarily trust every link you find on the internet. You can hover over the link and at the bottom of your browser, it'll give you a preview of where that link will take you. And what the link actually reads on your screen may not be where it takes you you can edit the HTML so that it displays a different address than where it will lead to. So browse—you know hover over any links you see and see if they look legitimate. You can also use incognito or private mode while you're browsing, and that will prevent your computer from recording cookies for the session or for the tabs you have opened and the history and will block a lot of the tracking that can happen um, it will not make you invisible on the internet. That's kind of a myth that the name implies, and it's something to be aware of.
0: Got it. Um, what about? Can you explain the difference between HTTP and HTTPS on a website? Because I know we went through a lot of work to make sure Wellness Summit was HTTPS, but can you explain basically what that is and why it matters?
1: Absolutely. So HTTP is the Hypertext Transport Protocol, um, and HTTPS is the secure version of that. What, what this means is whenever you make an HTTP connection to a website, so you visit, visit a website that is HTTP, any information you transmit to that, that website or receive from that website will be unencrypted uh, in what's called plain text. So it's just human readable to anyone on the network between you and that website. This is clearly not ideal if you're sending usernames and and password information to websites. So if you ever find a login page, or whenever you go to a login page, look at the top left and most browsers will tell you in in one or two kind of ways. Chrome, for instance, will have a green lock symbol and it'll say secure if you're using HTTPS. This means that it's safe to put in sensitive information and you can feel you know, pretty safe in sending that information out. That's something to be aware of on the internet and something to, to get in the habit of checking. You know, if, you're ever, if a website's ever asking for information, be sure to check that. Because even, even websites that are very well-intentioned may have made a mistake somewhere and have forgotten to implement HTTPS, And that's something to be aware of, and most of the web is moving towards HTTPS only, which is a great step, and it means less work and worry for the majority of people and consumers out there, which is good, but occasionally you'll run into this, so be aware of it and and keep an eye out.
0: Got it. And another thing I've thought about is most of us, we use our computers, but really like we're attached to our phone. It's like our phones go with us everywhere we go. Um, there's a whole, like, a whole fascinating field of psychology emerging about how literally like our phones are changing our brain. And that's obviously a topic for another day. But are there special um, things we need to consider or be aware of when we're using smartphones for most of our online activity these days?
1: Sure. Smartphones are often very overlooked as far as security goes, because it's it's just my phone right like it's it's my it's my facebook machine and my text messaging messaging machine the problem comes in that smartphones hold an enormous amount of data about you they they hold basically everyone you know you know all your contacts your facebook friends if you have facebook installed you know any social media has a whole bunch of data associated with it so what you would ideally like to do is make sure that full disk encryption or whole device encryption is enabled on your phone. By default, on most current phones, it should be. Both Android and iPhone have been updated in their more recent releases to have this enabled by default. This is a very important aspect to have because if someone steals your phone, they won't be able to get into it. Even even if you have a passcode, if your phone is not Fully encrypted, you can get a lot of the data out of the phone without the passcode, and this this is you know an important point because having a, having someone's phone to just sell to a pawn shop is one thing, but have stealing someone's phone and going I'm going to take all the information and you know you can ruin someone's life just by just by taking their phone. So use full disk encryption. Google this because. It's important, and there are guides to checking and enabling. Use strong passcodes. Passcodes on phones are not as secure as a password would be. So if you have that option, go ahead and use it. But use at least six digits on a passcode, and please don't use one 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 two three four five six. Same rules apply. You know, you want decent length and decent entropy on any passphrase that you have.
0: What about, I know a lot of phones now are using like, th- thumbprints, or some are even using facial, re- facial recognition. And I know like our lawyer has had his opinion on these, but I'm curious to hear yours, and then I'll also share kind of what he said.
1: This is a very interesting um, aspect of technology that's developing. Um, biometrics, they're very peculiar, because a password is technically something you know. A fingerprint is something you have, and this is a very weird distinction to make, but it's important. I mean, you leave your fingerprint literally everywhere you go, and it's easy or it's doable to take someone's fingerprint and actually unlock their phone with it. Getting a high quality picture of someone is relatively easy. There, are, there are ways to you know fool the biometric face scan that's coming out. The Apple's new facial ID is, it's actually very, it's robust, and it works well from everything I've read on it, Um, but it's not immune. Um, Also, a, a weird distinction is for law enforcement. If you're ever arrested or, you know, under investigation, a judge can issue a warrant for your fingerprint or your face, because that is something you have whereas a judge cannot order a warrant for something you know that that's under the 5th amendment of not testifying against yourself so it's it's i'm not saying anyone out there you know listening to the podcast is a criminal but that's a fact and it's interesting if if that seems weird to you or interesting google that because there's a lot of really cool articles on that
0: Yeah, and I know we can put some links in the show notes as well. That was pretty much what the legal team had advised as well, was that basically anything protected, like like you said, if it's knowledge that you have, it's protected by the Fifth Amendment. So if you are, for instance, going through TSA and they, for some reason, request to get onto your phone, you can refuse if it's information that you have, but they could legally force you to use your fingerprint or they could put the phone up to your face for facial recognition because that's something that you have that's so I think that's an important distinction hopefully one that none of us ever have to face or know but something good to know nonetheless um so for phones that's kind of the thing we'll put some links as well about full disk encryption, because I think that's something a lot of people miss. Another question I wanted to at least touch on, because I hear the term tossed around a lot, I'm guessing everybody's heard it, but probably doesn't really know what it is, is net neutrality. So can you kind of give us a primer on that?
1: Sure. Net neutrality basically means that internet service providers, you know, Comcast, Spectrum, Verizon, AT&T, whoever, whoever, you know, your ISP is, can't control what content goes through or how fast that content. So net neutrality says that ISPs, internet service providers, must treat all data equally. It's just equality of the data that's passing through the internet.
0: That makes sense. And I think, yeah, that's one of those things that's easy to hear a soundbite on a, you know, a news channel or something and think that you understand it or take a firm position one way or the other, but it's a much more complex issue. We can have some links in the show notes as well on that. Um, but I want to also tie in a lot of this because... If you look at it, this is all stuff that pretty much our generation has had to learn to navigate. Like our parents at our ages were not facing the same security concerns online, which means for our children especially, these things are going to become really imperative to know and to understand. And we're just now learning, I think, a lot of the things we are going to need to be able to teach our kids. The recent data breaches of the credit agencies, I think, brought a lot of people Realization that even your child's credit, for instance, can be hacked even if they've never used it. And on that um, scope, you can do things like freezing your children's credit to keep them safe. But the same applies to children's internet usage because a lot of us, the internet is such a part of our lives, it's easy to just give your children kind of unfettered access to the internet. Um, But taking into account everything we just talked about, that definitely doesn't seem like the best approach. So I wanted to like kind of dial this all down to from a family and a child's perspective. How can we? take steps to keep our kids safe online. Obviously, realizing like every aspect of parenting, you can never keep your child totally safe, but you can do a lot of things to help mitigate a lot of the things they would encounter. So when it comes to children and the internet, what are some good guidelines that we can start with?
1: Well, first off, this information is from research I've done. This is not firsthand knowledge. Uh, I, I don't have any children yet. So this is some steps I've, I've gathered around. Um, and Katie, you may even have some good suggestions here. From what I've looked up and, and read about, one of the most important things to do is to use devices with your children. So, you know, if your, your child has an iPad, sit down with them, you know, once every week, month, you know, a couple days. However much, you know, whenever you can get the time to do it, sit down and just watch them use the device. See what they do. Ask them questions, engage, and you like use the same services they are using. If they're playing a little game, sit down, play it with them. Watch it for a while. Make sure that it doesn't have ads that pop up that can, you know, start microtransactions, and you know that's that's a potential way for you to incur some harm from your child using a device. Make sure they're not googling around for unnecessary things, or you know that they're staying and they know where to stay on the internet. That's important. Let them watch you browse around. Do it, do it together. Make it a family event. And let them pick up on your habits. And you know, this implies that you should have good habits, which you should. So work on that and let them see. You will never be able to prevent your child from getting into trouble on the internet. The internet's too big. There are too many devices. It's literally everywhere these days. You need to be able to teach them what to do and set the example. You know, use a good password manager. Use strong security practices. Don't go to shady websites. If you, if you have these habits, they will pick it up. And, you know, whenever they get old enough, make sure you talk to them about, you know, passwords. Hopefully you're using a password manager for them when they're very young for any accounts they may have. And any accounts that they want to get, make sure they're restricted and not full admin privileges. And, you know, keep them fairly as restricted as you can while they're young. But as they age, back those restrictions off. Give them the tools to make mistakes, but make sure that those mistakes are small so they can learn from the mistakes without severe consequences.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. I think, like I said, this is a whole new world that parents of our time today are going to have to learn how to navigate. Because I even think when I was a kid, my mom took pictures and did scrapbooks, but it wasn't like she could share that to the her all of her friends that she knew in her in online world. And I think that's something that um, my husband and I put a lot of thought into is how do we want to introduce our kids to the online world? And how do we want to teach them responsibility in that? And for us, that meant, and this is not a judgment of anyone who does it differently, but that means that we don't put them online until they consent. And I know that's kind of a like touchy point for a lot of people, but I look back and think some of the things that are in my scrapbook from when I was two years old, I would not really want online. And we have to assume, um, I think it's a good rule at least to assume that anything that goes on the internet may or may not be able to be taken off the internet. You have to assume that once it's out there, it could potentially be out there forever. And I know I've heard a lot of parents jokingly or not so jokingly say like, oh man, I'm glad social media didn't exist when I was in college, or I probably would have gotten in a lot more trouble or those kind of comments, but the same applies to our kids. And so that's why our general rule has been... We don't even on our own personal Facebook pages or Instagram put pictures of our kids' faces or use their names because in our eyes, they, we want them to be able to consent to if or when they want to use social media um, because for all we know, like future employers or colleagues or anyone that they encounter could potentially Google them and find this information that they may or may not want shared. The point being, we feel like it's not our place to share it. But I think that what you said is key, that obviously we can't protect our children from the internet. Technology is not going away. It's going to be a part of their lives. But modeling for ourselves, using the internet safely, and also giving them independence at an appropriate age and teaching them before we do the ways to stay safe. I think I say that same correlation with food a lot, that we often underestimate kids and how they actually can make really good decisions if we give them the knowledge to do so and the independence to do so. And that's always the hard part is giving them the independence. So um, I think that's an important point. And I think, like I said, I think this is going to be a whole new world that our kids have to face that we did not at their age, and our parents certainly did not at our ages, so I'm glad that there are people like you out there giving the information of how to navigate it safely, and I think there might be a lot of follow-up questions to this episode, um, so if there are, I know this is like a pretty complex topic, so if there are, we might have to do a round two one day, but um, you mentioned a lot of things. There, there will be links in the show notes to a lot of those in case people have follow-up questions or they can contact you through the show notes as well, um, but do you kind of want to just give us a good conclusion of like do's and don'ts to remember when you're online?
1: Yeah, we'll start with passwords. And the main things to remember are password managers are a good thing. Take the time, research them, investigate and choose one and and stick with it. Use it for all your accounts. And remember that even if your password manager is holding your passwords, those passwords still need to be strong. They need to be long and they need to have high entropy. They need to be very random. So remember that and that'll help you a lot. Enable two-factor. And also treat security questions like they're another password. And don't use any publicly available information for your passwords. With your children, remember to sit down with them. Use the internet with them. Show them and teach them good practices that will help them as, as they grow. Because technology is not going anywhere and these will only become more important as they go. Uh, one suggestion I found was... To have a central charging station in your home, Uh, you know, in the living room or a hallway, not in a bedroom. And that's where any iPhones, iPods, tablets, anything like that, they live there at night. And that's where you charge them. So if you want to use it, you have to leave it there at night. And um, I know you've talked about sleep a lot on your podcast and having phones in in the bedroom while you're sleeping, this is a good way to kind of kill two birds with one stone. Um, And I would suggest that.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice, especially I know I've seen some recent news stories of people's like pillows catching fire because they try to sleep with something like a technology device underneath it. Or like we even just know with their studies that blue light is harmful to your melatonin at night and it can reduce your sleep and what parent wants their child to sleep less. So I think that charging station is like a super simple thing that you can implement that also allows you to just keep an eye on their tablets or their devices and their online activity and to make sure that you're teaching them those habits as they go. And I think that's just a super important point. But um, we've covered so many things. Like I said, I think we might have to do a round two one day. All the links will be in the show notes. But thank you, Patrick, so much for your time and being here. Please, you guys, listen to the advice he's given and stay safe online because it is a crazy world out there. So Patrick, thank you. Thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I will see you next time on the Healthy Moms Podcast.